Chapter 56 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 56, Part 2. To triumph over the proud soul of Lord Sherbury and his son was indeed an idea which afforded rapture. Both he had ever disliked, the latter particularly. He disliked him for the superiority which he saw in every respect he possessed over himself. A stranger to noble emulation he sought not, by study or imitation, to aspire to any of those graces or perfections he beheld in Lord Mortimer. He sought alone to depreciate them, and, when he found that impossible, beheld him with greater envy and malignity than ever. To wound Lord Mortimer through the bosom of his father, to overwhelm him with confusion, by publicly displaying the error of that father, were ideas of the most exquisite delight, ideas which the wealth of worlds would scarcely have tempted him to forego. So sweet is any triumph, however accidental or imaginary, over a noble object, to an envious mind which ever hates that excellence it cannot reach. No fear of self-interest being injured checked his pleasure. The fortune of Lord Sherbury he knew sufficient to answer for his violated trust. Thus had he another source of triumph in the prospect of having those so long considered as the proud rivals of his wealth and splendor cast into the shade. His pleasure, however, from this idea was short-lived, when he reflected that Lord Mortimer's union with Lady Euphrasia would totally exempt him from feeling any inconvenience from his father's conduct. But could not this union be prevented? Freelove asked himself. He still wanted a short period of being of age, consequently had no right at present to demand a settlement of his affairs from Lord Sherbury. He might, however, privately inform Lady Euphrasia of the affairs so recently communicated to him. No sooner did he conceive this scheme than he glowed with impatience to put it into execution. He hastened to the Marquises, whither, indeed, the extravagant and foppish preparations he had made for the projected nuptials had before prevented his going, and took the first opportunity which offered of revealing to Lady Euphrasia, as if from the purest friendship, the conduct of Lord Sherbury and the derangement of his affairs. Lady Euphrasia was at once surprised and incensed, the reason for a union between her and his son being so ardently desired by Lord Sherbury was now fully explained, and she beheld herself as an object addressed merely from a view of repairing a ruined fortune. But this view she resolved to disappoint. Such was the implacable nature of her disposition, that had this disappointment occasioned the destruction of her own peace, it would not have made her relinquish it. But this was not the case. In sacrificing all ideas of a union with Lord Mortimer to her offended pride, she sacrificed no wish or inclination of her soul. Lord Mortimer, though the object of her admiration, had never been the object of her love. She was, indeed, incapable of feeling that passion. Her admiration had, however, 
long since given place to resentment, at the cool indifference with which he regarded her. She would have opposed a marriage with him, but for fear that he might, thus freed, attach himself to Amanda. The moment, however, she knew a union with her was necessary for the establishment of his fortune, fear, with every consideration which could oppose it, vanished before the idea of disappointing his views, and retaliating upon him that uneasiness he had, from wounded pride, made her experience by his cold and unalterable behavior to her. She at first determined to acquaint the Marquise of what she had heard, but a little reflection made her drop this determination. He had always professed a warm regard for Lord Sherbury, and she feared that regard would still lead him to insist on the nuptials taking place. She was not long in concerting a scheme to render such a measure impracticable, and free love she resolved to make an instrument for forwarding, or rather executing, her revenge. She hesitated not to say that she had always disliked Lord Mortimer, that, in short, there was but one being she could ever think, ever hope to be happy with. Her broken sentences, her looks, her affected confusion, all revealed to free love that he was that object. The rapture this discovery inspired he could not conceal. The flattering expressions of Lady Euphrasia were repaid by the most extravagant compliments, the warmest professions, the strongest assurances of never-dying love. This soon led to what she desired, and in a short space an elopement was agreed to, and everything relative to it settled. Free love's own servants and equipage were at the castle, and consequently but little difficulty attended the arrangement of their plan. In Lady Euphrasia's eyes, free love had no other value than what he now merely derived from being an instrument in gratifying the haughty and revengeful passions of her nature. She regarded him, indeed, with sovereign contempt. His fortune, however, she knew would give him consequence in the world, and she was convinced she should find him quite that easy, convenient husband which a woman of fashion finds so necessary. In short, she looked forward to being the uncontrolled mistress of her own actions, and without a doubt but that she should meet many objects as deserving of her admiration, and infinitely more grateful for it than ever Lord Mortimer had been. Flushed with such a pleasing prospect, she quitted the castle, the castle she was destined never more to see. At the moment, the very moment, she smiled with joy and expectation, the shaft, the unerring shaft, was raised against her breast. The marriage ceremony over, they hastened to the vicinity of the castle in order to send an apologizing letter, as usual on such occasions. The night was dark and dreary, the road rugged and dangerous. The postilions ventured to say it would be better to halt for the night, but this was opposed by Lady Euphrasia. They were within a few miles of the destined termination of their journey, and, pursuant to her commands, they proceeded. In a few minutes after this, the horses, startled by a sudden light which gleamed across the path, began plunging in the most alarming manner. A frightful precipice lay on one side, and the horses, in spite of all the efforts of the postilions, continued to approach it. Free love in this dreadful moment, lost all consideration but for himself. He burst open the chariot door and leaped into the road. 
His companion was unable to follow his example. She had fainted at the first intimation of danger. The postilions with difficulty dismounted. The other servants came to their assistance and endeavored to restrain the horses. Every effort was useless. They broke from their hold and plunged down the precipice. The servants had heard the chariot door open. They therefore concluded, for it was too dark to see, that both their master and Lady Euphrasia were safe. But who can describe their horror when a loud shriek from him declared her situation? Some of them immediately hastened, as fast as their trembling limbs could carry them, to the house adjoining the road from whence the fatal light had gleaned, which caused the sad catastrophe. They revealed it in a few words and implored immediate assistance. The master of the house was a man of the greatest humanity. He was inexpressibly shocked at what he had heard and joined himself in giving the assistance that was desired. With lanterns, they proceeded down the winding path cut in the precipice and soon discovered the objects of their search. The horses were already dead. The chariot was shattered to pieces. They took up some of the fragments and discovered beneath them the lifeless body of the unfortunate Lady Euphrasia. The stranger burst into tears at the sight of so much horror and, in a voice scarcely audible, gave orders for her being conveyed to his house. But when a better light gave more perfect view of the mangled remains, all acknowledged that, since so fatal an accident had befallen her, heaven was merciful in taking a life whose continuance would have made her endure the most excruciating tortures. Freelove was now inquired for. He had fainted on the road, but in a few minutes after he was brought in, recovered his senses, and the first use he made of them was to inquire whether he was dead or alive. Upon receiving the comfortable assurance of the latter, he congratulated himself, in a manner so warm, upon his escape, as plainly proved Self was his whole and sole consideration. No great preparations, on account of his feelings, were requisite to inform him of the fate of Lady Euphrasia. He shook his head on hearing it, said it was what he already guessed, from the devilish plunge of the horses, declared it was a most unfortunate affair, and expressed a kind of terror at what the Marquise might say to it, as if he could have been accused of being accessory to it. Mr. Murray, the gentleman whose house had received him, offered to undertake the distressing task of breaking the affair to Lady Euphrasia's family, an offer free love gladly accepted, declaring he felt himself too much disordered in mind and body to be able to give any directions relative to what was necessary to be done. How Mr. Murray executed his task is already known, but it was long ere the emotions of the Marquise would suffer him to say he wished the remains of Lady Euphrasia to be brought to the castle, that all the honors due to her birth should be paid them. This was accordingly done, and the castle, so lately ornamented for her nuptials, was hung with black, and all the pageantries of death. The Marquise and Marchioness confined themselves in the deepest anguish to their apartments. Their domestics, filled with terror and amazement, glided about like pale spectres, and all was a scene of solemnity and sadness. Every moment Lord Mortimer could spare from his father, he devoted to the Marquise. 
Lady Euphrasia had ever been an object of indifference, nay, of dislike to him, but the manner of her death, notwithstanding, shocked him to the soul. His dislike was forgotten. He thought of her only with pity and compassion, and the tears he mingled with the Marquis were tears of unfeigned sympathy and regret. Lady Martha and Lady Araminta were equally attentive to the Marchioness. The time not spent with Lord Sherbury was devoted to her. They used not unavailing arguments to conquer a grief which nature, as her rightful tribute, demands. But they soothed that grief by showing they sincerely mourned its source. Lord Sherbury had but short intervals of reason. Those intervals were employed by Lord Mortimer in trying to compose his mind, and by him in blessing his son for those endeavors, and congratulating himself on the prospect of approaching dissolution. His words unutterably affected Lord Mortimer. He had reason to believe they were dictated by prophetic spirit, and the dismal peal which rang from morning till night for Lady Euphrasia sounded in his ear as the knell of his expiring father. Things were in this situation in the castle, when Oscar and his friend Sir Charles Bingley arrived at it, and, without sending in their names, requested immediate permission to the Marquis's presence upon business of importance. Their request was complied with, from an idea that they came from free love, to whom the Marquis and Marchioness, from respect and affection to the memory of their daughter, had determined to pay every attention. The Marquis knew and was personally known to Sir Charles. He was infinitely surprised by his appearance, but how much was that surprise increased when Sir Charles, taking Oscar by the hand, presented him to the Marquis as the son of Lady Fitzalan, the rightful heir of the Earl of Dunreath. The Marquis was confounded. He trembled at these words, and his confusion, had such a testimony been wanting, would have been sufficient to prove his guilt. He at last, though with a faltering voice, desired to know by what means Sir Charles could justify or support his assertion. Sir Charles, for Oscar was too much agitated to speak, as briefly as possible related all the particulars which had led to the discovery of the Earl's will. And his friend, he added, with the generosity of a noble mind, wished as much as possible to spare the feelings and save the honor of those with whom he was connected. A wish which nothing but a hesitation in complying with his just and well-supported claim could destroy. The Marquis's agitation increased. Already was he stripped of happiness, and he now saw himself on the point of being stripped of honor. An hour before he had imagined his wretchedness could not be augmented. He was now convinced human misery cannot be complete without the loss of reputation. In the idea of being esteemed, of being thought undeserving our misfortunes, there is a sweet, a secret balm, which meliorates the greatest sorrow. Of riches in his own right, the Marquis ever possessed more than sufficient for all his expenses. These expenses would now, comparatively speaking, be reduced within very narrow bounds, for the vain pride which had led him to delight in pomp and ostentation died with Lady Euphrasia. Since, therefore, of his fortune, such a superabundance would remain, it was unnecessary as well as unjust to detain what he had no pretensions to. 
but he feared tamely acquiescing to this unexpected claim would be to acknowledge himself a villain tis true indeed that his newly felt remorse had inspired him with a wish of making reparation for his past injustice but false shame starting up hitherto opposed it and even now when an opportunity offered of accomplishing his wish still continued to oppose it lest the scorn and contempt he dreaded should at length be his portion for his long injustice irresolute how to act he sat for some time silent and embarrassed till at last recollecting his manner was probably betraying what he wished to conceal namely the knowledge of the will he said with some sternness that till he inspected into the affair so recently laid before him he could not nor was it to be expected he should say how he would act an inspection which under present melancholy circumstances he could not possibly make for some time had mr fitzallen he added possess in reality that generosity sir charles partiality ascribed to him he would not at a period so distressing have appeared to make such a claim to delicacy and sensibility the privileges of grief were ever held sacred those privileges they had both violated they had intruded on his sorrows they had even insulted him by appearing on such a business before him ere the last rites were paid to his lamented child sir charles and oscar were inexpressibly shocked both were totally ignorant of the recent event oscar as he recovered from the surprise the marquise's words had given him declared in the impassioned language of a noble mind hurt by being thought destitute of sensibility that the marquise had arraigned him unjustly had he known of his sorrows he said nothing should have tempted him to intrude upon them he mourned he respected them he besought him to believe him sincere in what he uttered a tear an involuntary tear as he spoke starting into his eye and trickling down his cheek denoted his sincerity the marquise's heart smote him as he beheld this tear it reproached him more than the keenest words could have done and operated more in oscar's favour than any arguments however eloquent had this young man thought he been really illiberal when i reproached him for a want of sensibility how well might he have retaliated upon me my more flagrant want of justice and humanity but no he sees i am a son of sorrow and he will not break the reed which heaven has already smitten tears gushed from his eyes he involuntarily extended his hand to oscar i see said he i see indeed i have unjustly arraigned you but i will endeavour to atone for my error at present rest satisfied with an assurance that whatever is equitable shall be done and that let events turn out as they may i shall ever feel myself your friend oscar again expressed his regret for having waited on him at such a period and requested he would dismiss for the present the subject they had been talking of from his mind the marquise still more pleased with his manner desired his direction and assured him he should hear from him sooner than he expected as soon as they retired his agitation decreased and of course he was better qualified to consider how he should act the restitution his conscience prompted but his false ideas of shame had prevented 
he now found he should be compelled to make. How to make it, therefore, so as to avoid total disgrace, was what he considered. At last he adopted a scheme which the sensibility of Oscar, he flattered himself, would enable him to accomplish. This was to declare that by the Earl of Dunreath's will, Mr. Fitzalan was heir to his estates, in the case of the death of Lady Euphrasia, that in consequence, therefore, of this event, he had come to take possession of them, that Lady Dunreath, whose residence at Dunreath Abbey he could not now hope to conceal, was but lately returned from a convent in France, where for many years she had resided. To Oscar he intended saying, from her ill-conduct, he and the marchioness had been tempted to sequester her from the world, in order to save her from open shame and derision, and that her declaration of a will they had always believed the mere fabrication of her brain, in order, as he supposed, to give them uneasiness. This scheme, once formed, his heart felt a little relieved of the heavy burden of fear and inquietude. He repaired to the marchioness's apartment, and broke the affair gently to her, adding, at the same time, that, sensible as they must now be of the vanities and pursuits of human life, it was time for them to endeavor to make their peace with heaven. Affliction had taught penitence to the marchioness, as well as her husband. She approved of his scheme, and thought with him, that the sooner their intention of making restitution was known, the greater would be the probability of its being accomplished. Oscar, therefore, the next day, received a letter from the Marquise, specifying at once his wishes. With those wishes, Oscar generously complied. His noble soul was superior to a triumph over a fallen enemy, and he had always wished rather to save from than expose the Marquise to disgrace. He hastened as soon as possible to the castle, agreeably to a request contained in the letter, to assure the Marquis his conduct throughout the whole affair would be regulated according to his desire. Perhaps at this moment, public contempt could not have humbled the Marquis more than such generosity, when he drew a comparison between himself and the person he had so long injured. The striking contrast wounded his very soul, and he groaned at the degradation he suffered in his own eyes. He told Oscar, as soon as the last sad duties were performed to his daughter, he would settle everything with him, and then perhaps be able to introduce him to the marchioness. He desired he might take up his residence in the castle, and expressed a wish that he would attend the funeral of Lady Euphrasia as one of the chief mourners. Oscar declined the former, but promised, with a faltering voice, to comply with the latter request. He then retired, and the Marquise, who had been roused from the indulgence of his grief by a wish of preserving his character, again relapsed into its wretchedness. He desired Oscar to make no secret of his now being the heir to the Earl of Dunreath, and said he would mention it himself in his family. Through this medium, therefore, did this surprising intelligence reach Lord Mortimer, and his heart dilated with sudden joy at the idea of his Amanda and her brother at last enjoying independence and prosperity. In a few hours after this, the sufferings of Lord Sherbury were terminated. His last faltering accents pronounced his blessings on his son. Oh, how sweet were those blessings! 
How different were the feelings of Lord Mortimer from the callous sons of dissipation, who seem to watch with impatience the last struggles of a parent, that they may have more extensive means of gratifying their inordinate desires. The feelings of Lord Mortimer were soothed by reflecting he had done everything in his power for restoring the tranquillity of his father, and his regret was lessened by the conviction that Lord Sherbury, after the discovery of his conduct, could never more in this life have experienced happiness. He, therefore, with tender piety, resigned him to God, humbly trusting that his penitence had atoned for his frailties and ensured him felicity. He now bade adieu to the castle and its wretched owners, and accompanied Lady Martha and his sister to Thornbury, at which the burying place of the family lay. Here he continued till the remains of his father arrived and were interred. He then proceeded to London to put into execution the plan he had projected for his father. He immediately advertised the Tudor estate. A step of this kind could not be concealed from Lady Martha, but the mortgages on the other estates he resolved carefully to guard from her knowledge, lest suspicions prejudicial to the memory of his father should arise in her mind. But, during this period, the idea of Amanda was not absent from his soul. Neither grief nor business could banish it a moment, and, again, a thousand fond and flattering hopes concerning her had revived, when a sudden blow dispersed them all, and plunged him, if possible, into greater wretchedness than he had ever before experienced. He heard it confidently reported that the Earl of Dunreath's sister, for Oscar by that time had claimed and had been allowed to take the title of his grandfather, was to be married to Sir Charles Bingley. The friendship which he knew subsisted between the Earl and Sir Charles rendered this too probable. But if a doubt concerning it still lingered in his mind, it was destroyed when Sir Charles waited on him to treat about the purchase of Tudor Hall. It instantly occurred to him that this purchase was made by the desire of Amanda. Unable to command his feelings, he referred Sir Charles to his agent and abruptly retired. He called her cruel and ungrateful. After all his sufferings on her account, did he deserve so soon to be banished from her remembrance, so soon supplanted in her affections by another? by one, too, who never had, who never would have, an opportunity of giving such proofs as he had done of constancy and love. She is lost, then, he sighed. She is lost forever. Oh, what avails the vindication of her fame? Is it not an augmentation of my misery? Oh, my father, of what a treasure did you despoil me? But let me not disturb the sacred ashes of the dead. Rest, rest in peace." thou venerable author of my being, and may the involuntary expression of heart-rending anguish be forgiven. Amanda, then, he continued after a pause, will indeed be the mistress of Tudor Hall, but never will a sigh for him who once was its owner leave her bosom. She will wander beneath those shades where so often she has heard my vows of unalterable love, vows which, alas, my heart has too fully observed, and listened to similar ones from Sir Charles. Well, this is the last stroke fate can level at my peace. Lord Mortimer, or, as in future we must style him, Lord Sherbury, had indeed imagined 
that the affections of Amanda, like his own, were unalterable. He had therefore indulged the rapturous idea that, by again seeking a union with her, she should promote the happiness of both. It is true, he knew, she would possess a fortune infinitely superior to what he had now a right to expect. But after the proofs he had given of disinterested attachment, not only she but the world, he was convinced, would acquit him of any selfish motives in the renewal of his addresses. His hopes destroyed, his prospect blasted by what he had heard he resolved as soon as affairs were settled to go abroad. The death of his father had rendered his entering the army unnecessary, and his spirits were too much broken, his health too much impaired, for him voluntarily now to embrace that destiny. On the purchase of Tudor Hall being completed by Sir Charles, it was necessary for Lord Sherbury to see his steward. He preferred going to sending for him, prompted indeed by a melancholy wish of paying a last visit to Tudor Hall, and dear to his heart by a thousand fond remembrances. On his arrival, he took up his abode at the steward's for a day or two. After a strict injunction to him of concealing his being there, it was after a ramble through every spot about the domain which he had ever trodden with Amanda that he repaired to the library and discovered her. He was ignorant of her being in the country. Oh, then, how great was her surprise, how exquisite his emotions, at seeing her in such unexpected circumstances. I shall not attempt to go over the scene I have already tried to describe. Suffice it to say, that the desire she betrayed of hastening from him, he imputed to the alteration of her sentiments with respect to him and Sir Charles. When undeceived in this respect, his rapture was as great as ever it had before been at the idea of her love, and, like Amanda, he declared his suffering was now amply rewarded. End of chapter 56, part 2 Recording by Maricel Quee.